it connects all of these things. And so we have to start thinking about it on that level, not thinking about a transportation evolution as just laying down concrete, right? But really taking in the individual. It's the individual before the project. Um, and so if we look at it through that lens, we can then start to build something that actually works for the benefit of us all. That is Yasmin Smith. She is the vice president of People United for Mobility Action, Puma, in Austin. She is one of our guests on this episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. Our topic is transportation and the upcoming vote on Proposition A. You gotta leave it to the Before we get to the show, an extra special thanks to the Tiara Girls, a local band made up of three sisters who lent us this amazing song, Leave It to the People, to use as our podcast intro. Graduates of the Ann Richards School, they create music for an empowered generation. You can find them on Spotify and on Instagram at Tiara Girl Band. And now on to our show and your host, Amy Stansbury. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Austin Common Radio Hour. It's still so exciting that we're here. Um, This week, we're going to continue our deep dive into the upcoming local elections by looking at Prop A, which is something we'll all have to vote on in November and is something that I would definitely file into the big deal category for this election because it has to do with that thing that all of us Austinites love to complain about, which is traffic. Uh, That's right, in voting on Prop A, we'll all get to decide whether or not we want Capital Metro, which is our city's public transportation provider, to invest in a $7.1 billion expansion to our transit system. A system that would include genuine inner city rail, which is known by the transit experts as light rail, and even an underground transit tunnel for the first time ever in our city's history. Like I said, it's a pretty big deal but it's not without its fair share of controversy. Obviously, Austin has a bad traffic problem and we need to do something about it, but not everyone is so sold that rail is the right answer. It's also a really expensive system that will cost the average Austinite with a home worth about $325,000, about $284 a year more in property taxes. And this is a city that has rejected urban rail plans not once, but twice in recent years. At the same time, Austin is growing like crazy and traffic is a mess, and pretty much everyone agrees that we need to do something, and waiting around only makes the problem worse. And as more and more people move into Austin from cities with public transit, there seems to be more people around who would be willing to use transit if it were a more convenient option. Oh, and of course, let's not forget that we're also in the middle of a global pandemic that has kept a lot of us off the roads lately entirely, and has hurt a lot of us economically, which makes investing in a large infrastructure project, even if it does feel important, like a lot harder of a pill to swallow. And so this is what we're tackling on today's show. It's gonna be a lot of fun, it's super important. Um, we're gonna start with a conversation with Cat Metro, where we're gonna get all the details about exactly what's included in that $7.1 billion investment and what we'll be voting on when it comes to Prop A. Then in the middle of our show, we're gonna take a look back to uncover the history of Austin's mass transit system from streetcars to failed transit bonds to give you a little context. And then we'll wrap things up with a conversation with Yasmin Smith of Puma, People United for Mobility Action, which is about mobility. We'll be talking with her about mobility equity and the impact that this transportation plan could have on economic and racial justice in this city. 
Okay. I know a lot of you are out there living busy lives and don't have all day to listen to a podcast about the upcoming election. So let's just get right into it. Um, First up, we're going to listen to that interview I recorded with Jackie Nirenberg, who's the manager of community involvement with Capital Metro. All right. So I am here with Jackie from Cap Metro, um, who has been, I'm sure, very busy lately going all around town (laughs) telling people about Prop A and Project Connect. Uh, thanks for coming back on. I know you've we've chatted a lot over the years about yeah, Project no, Connect. No, my pleasure. Always happy to come back. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, and so um, voters in November are going to have to vote on this uh, Prop A. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, it's so confusing. We have always have a bunch of like props and letters and numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is a big deal. This is one of the bigger things we've had to vote on in a while. And Um, So I want to kind of first just walk through with you, let people know, all right, if you're voting in this Prop A, what does it mean? And basically what you're voting for is this suite, this plan um, that really would dramatically change our public transit system here in town. That's correct. It's a a huge (laughs) system expansion plan. Okay. And so let's go through the basics. The big, like, I think the exciting one for a lot of folks is rail. Can we talk about what what would it mean? It's two, two rail lines. Two light rail lines, and I I just want to take a second just to distinguish between light rail and commuter rail, because we currently run the Metro Rail Service. That's the one that runs from Leander into downtown. It's a commuter service. Um, And the one we're talking about, the two new ones we're talking about are light rail, which means they're urban uh, rail system, more frequent stopping. So they're designed for inner city travel. Um, And one would be north-south, excuse me, north-south, the initial investment would be from the North Lamar Transit Center at, at uh, Lamar and 183 um, down to Stasny Lane. Would travel on North Lamar, would cut over to Guadalupe, and then to South Congress. Then we have the other light rail line would be the blue line, and that would run from the airport into downtown, um, and then up to ACC Highland and terminate at uh, North Lamar Transit Center as well. And that one um, runs along Riverside too, a lot of that, A large part of it would run right along Riverside. The other thing that's interesting about the blue line is that um, downtown, it would be an underground tunnel and it would have three underground stations, including uh, the Republic Square station. Um, so that's something new for our city. Um, and then we were also proposing a third uh, rail line, but this would be another commuter line like the Metro Rail or the Red Line that we have right now. That would be the Green Line, and that would be running from downtown to Colony Park initially, and then in the future, hopefully to Maynard and even Elgin to help bring folks who have moved out that way uh, to get to work every day or to the services they need here in Austin. Right, so um, that's a nice east connector. That's, I know, something that we've been kind of missing in this city. So that Yes. Works. And then um, for these lines, like you said, um, downtown, it does involve a bit of this downtown tunnel system where um, there might be some stops to avoid, I guess, just, you know, there's not a lot of real estate downtown to have Oh, it's stops. pretty tight, yeah. Right. But then also, um, would it allow you to kind of connect between the lines or other bus yes, stations? Yes, it would allow for uh, connections. Um, it, it also, because of that, allows for the, the entire system to run more uh, smoothly and more reliably. Um, And then in the construction, it allows for um, the construction work to circumvent a lot of the utilities that are underground. Now, of course, we won't know exactly what's under there until we begin the design and engineering work, but um, that's the idea. It it would go below most of the utilities. 
Okay. And so this, these light rail lines are really what I think a lot of Austinites have been asking for for years or wondering why we don't have it's like true inner city in its own lane rail, light rail. Correct. Okay. And then the, but there's more parts of this plan, right? Yes. It's not yes. just rail. So there's also a pretty big expansion of the Metro Rapid, which are um, kind of like our, the, the fancier, faster buses, I guess. Yeah, that yeah. so they have limited now. stops, which is why it's called a Rapid. They also have priority lanes in some places. Currently we have two of these and we have priority lanes in uh, downtown and on La Vaca and Guadalupe. You may have seen those bus only lanes. Also signal timing is, um, different for these buses. They get a little bit of a queue jump at intersections, so they get out of the way of other traffic. Uh, and we're proposing four more of these in the initial investment. That, that's the part that's going to be on the um, referendum on the ballot. Yeah. And then, so there's more of those. There's also more uh, park and rides, I guess, right? For those are for yes. commuters. Yes, so we recognize that there are so many people that are having to live outside of Austin for affordability, affordability issues and other reasons, and, but they're still having to come into work every day. And you know, the Metro Express service that we offer now is one of our most popular services because it, it travels so easily in and out of town. Uh, people can actually do their work on the bus and, and you know, have Wi-Fi, it's very comfortable. We're proposing adding more Metro Express service for both, both from the North and the South and to um, accommodate that to find um, locations for new park and ride facilities um, and new park and ride facilities that have a lot more amenities than what we see now. So we could have like charging stations for electric vehicles, for example, and bike share availability, public restrooms, which is something we've been hearing a lot from our community that they'd like to see. Um, and even vending opportunities for local retailers or food service. Right, and all of these buses, the end goal too is for them all to be electric, right? Yes, zero emissions fleet. Um, that's been our goal from the beginning. And, you know, if you look at, out at the uh, environment today during the pandemic, I mean, one of the silver line, linings has been the air quality. Um, you can see that there's a big difference. And so uh, that's a big part of Project Connect as well. Right, so we have really an entire system that we're looking at building out. Um, and then in addition to, to all of the transit um, pieces, I think council voted to put in $300 million for um, prevent affordable housing and to try and prevent some displacement that could happen along the new lines, right? That's correct. Um, and, you know, that's something that we heard from the community, concerns about um, displacement uh, risks that come with infrastructure projects and, and property values going up. And it's a very real concern. And um, that $300 million is the largest of its kind associated with a transit um, initiative in the country. Um, and it's, it's also different because it's being done up front. Um, and we'll be having a um, community advisory committee that helps determine how that is going to be implemented. So it's, it's a really exciting development. Right. And so the entire package is that voters will be voting on is like 7.1 billion. That would fund everything you just talked about. There is a larger plan that's 10 billion. That includes, like you said, that gold line being an actual rail line and a few other I think more bus routes and, and things. Yeah, more, more, just more rapids, of what we talked yeah. about. Uh -huh. um, but um, council and, and some city leadership, obviously looking at the pandemic, um, earlier this year thought maybe we should start with a slightly smaller investment. 
given people's concern about pricing right now. Um, So there's the potential for even one day for voters to decide they even want to build out that full system, which is 10 billion. Correct. Okay. And then also um, all of the money isn't coming from us, right? So there's a, um, the federal government, the expectation there is that the federal government will chip in. The number I've read is about 45%. That's the expectation is about 45%. Recent projects around the country have been funded uh, between 45 and even 50%. So the technical team considers that a conservative estimate. Yeah. And then, you know, the big thing then I think that voters are curious about is, okay, so they go, they vote on it, and then what, what might it cost them? And so, um, I think, you know, the number that I had seen was like, maybe, what was it, 275 a, a homeowner? Yeah, if you, or what if kind you of have a, a house that is valued at about $325,000, you're probably looking at about 278 Dollars, I think is, and if you go to the city's website um, and just uh, search for Project Connect, it'll pull up um, the table there that shows you the valuation of all the levels of housing and how much it'll cost. Uh, Somebody told me recently that it would be about 78 cents a day. Right. Generally what we're looking at. So that price tag, that's almost $300 about a year for that that $325,000 home, which is the medium Nossin. that is a, a yearly fee, basically. That's, prob- that's what it costs. It's Correct. not a one-time expense. No, it is a yearly fee. Um, and so what voters are, are voting on, just to be clear, because I think this can be confusing too, it's not a bond. Historically, I think a lot of our transportation projects have been funded this way um, through a bond, but this is actually um, a tax rate election. Can you, can you explain right. what that so means? Th- this would be an increase in the taxes. It's about a 4% increase. Um, and the reason that the city council decided to do that is because there's more to, when you do a bond election, it's a one-time influx of funds. And, you know, we have to run the system. There has to be operating and maintenance. Uh, and that, that is in perpetuity. And so in order to make sure that we are able to run and maintain the system in good repair, um, that's the decision they made so that we wouldn't have to worry about how we would get that funding moving forward. Right. So just for people who maybe don't know what a bond is, it's like the bond is more like a traditional loan. This is something we voted on a lot in Austin. You fund, usually it's like a one-time project or expense, build a new road, build some bike lanes. Um, The city takes out a loan and they have to in turn raise property taxes a bit for a certain period of time in order to pay back that loan. This is more saying, okay, we're going to carve out a dedicated tax stream that's going to cost about this $300 a year so that we can not just fund the system up front, but to continue to operate it. Is that a fair? Correct. And it's okay. like what they did with the, um, the medical school district, similar uh, approach. Okay. And so who will be in charge of that money, right? Yeah, that's a good and that, question. Yeah. So this is yeah. a new kind of uh, Austin Transportation Partnership. Right. There would be a partnership between the city of Austin and Cap Metro. It would have an independent board. Um, and the purpose of that would be to take these different streams of funds that would be coming in and administer them in an independent, neutral uh, organization. Um, this group would oversee the spending of the funds and um, the implementation of the construction projects for Project Connect. 
and provide that transparency and neutrality. There would be an independent auditor associated with the uh, Austin Transit Partnership. The board would include three community members um, with, with experience in finance, for example, or engineering and construction, um, and also a community advisory uh, committee. Yeah, and this would be separate than the CAP Metro board. This would be separate, a separate board, exactly. They okay. would report regularly to the board and to the city council. And so the money that's being raised right now, I mean, I assume it takes a while. It's not like the products will be built tomorrow. Right. You know, but I guess um, if we wanted to go for that big $10 billion, you know, if we wanted to finish the system, I guess it's confusing. It's like, well, we're, gonna, we're still collecting money, but maybe it would cost more money out and then we, they would come back to voters. You know, like how, how does that, I know we don't really have the system in place yet, but mm -hmm. I guess, yeah, that's the part I don't quite understand is if they want to do another project, they come back to voters again, or that's kind of the set price for now. Yeah. Or Yep. The other possibility is that um, an expansion of the system could include other communities that aren't currently part of the CAP Metro. Wow. Um, or maybe they are part of the CAP Metro service area, but we're only, uh, we're only uh, building the projects in Austin right now, which is why it's a city of Austin election. Um, so that, that expansion could include possibly elections in other communities. Yeah. Okay, I see. And then, you know, I'm sure the other big question you get from folks is, when will this be built? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So, I wish it was tomorrow. Right. Um, <laughs> so if voters approve it in November, what kind of timeline are we looking at? I know it's a major project. It is a major project. It takes a while. Um, and the first thing that would happen almost immediately is that um, we would begin the preliminary engineering and design work. We would begin simultaneously uh, an environmental assessment, which is what's required uh, by NEPA, which is the National uh, Environmental Protection Act. Um, and that is part of getting that federal funding. And so we would do that environmental work. And that's not just the physical and natural environment, it's also the human environment, the social environment. And so at that point, we would be going out to um, stakeholders along the corridors, business owners, residents, and talking to them at a very granular level to find out you know, how they live in this corridor, you know, get their feedback on station locations, station designs, things like that. Um, but also, you know, understand what kinds of impacts could happen to these communities and be ready to develop mitigation strategies. And that's kind of where that 300 million will come in as well um, to address yeah. those, those impacts on people. And then what it's like, we're probably looking at eight, like I, I've heard like eight to 10 years until. Yes, yeah, so at the, the preliminary engineering and environmental work will take about 18 months. At that point, we can begin construction. The, the light rail lines, probably looking at about 2028 or 2029 before we're actually riding on those. Um, some of the other projects will come much quicker. Uh, for example, the Metro Rapids um, would be online fairly quickly in the, in the first two years or so. Um, the Gold Line may take a bit longer because it has to go through that environmental process so that it can uh, in the future possibly become that light rail service. Um, might as well get that done now. Um, and then, you know, enhancements to the rail, the red line, um, the green line is further out. Uh, we're probably looking at the eighth year out from the election to, to begin work on that. And the reason for that is that we just don't have 
get the development and density along that corridor to be able to meet the threshold for FTA funding. Um, but we did a study, uh, Capital Metro did a, a study on development potential along that corridor um, and you know, has used that to set ourselves up to make that application um, when the time comes. Um, and the, the, aside from the Metro Rapids, we'll be looking immediately for um, locations for the park and rides. Um, and once those park and rides are established, we'd be able to put that Metro, uh, Metro Express service out. Um, oh, the other thing that could happen fairly quickly, and we didn't mention this before, is circulator service. We've had this um, circulator service called Pickup that, that's been deployed in about six neighborhoods in Austin and then a couple of outside communities, including Leander and um, Maynard, Lago Vista, and we're about to do one soon in Pflugerville. Um, and those would be deployed. We have um, plans to put those out in a lot of different places around the city, and that's to kind of help people get that first and last mile uh, to a, the nearest stop or station if it's far, too far to walk or too hot to walk. Let's face it, it's Austin, Texas. Um, so those could come online uh, a little bit at a time very, very quickly. Yeah. And so, you know, on today's episode, a lot of what we're focusing on too is looking back at the history of public transportation in Austin. And, you know, it's been had its fits and starts. And I think this is a project the community has been working on for a long time. Um, what do you see as, um, what's different about this, this plan and project than maybe some recent ones we've done? There's a lot different. I mean, for one thing, this plan that's being put forward to the community is an actual full system of projects as opposed to one rail alignment, for example. Um, and this entire system, you know, it, it all fits together to create connections for everybody, no matter where you live in the city. That's one major thing. And that, that was a lesson learned from uh, the 2014 referendum is that folks want to see, you know, how can they benefit from this naturally? Um, so that's one big difference. Demographically, Austin has changed uh, since the last time we talked about this. We have a lot more young people moving to the city, young professionals, um, who frankly are coming from communities that you know, have robust transit systems, had robust transit systems, and they'd like to have that <laughs> where they live. So um, that's, that's definitely different. Um, and Capital Metro is in a much better position now to be able to uh, embark on this kind of major initiative now than, than we have been at any time in the past. So um, in the pandemic itself, it, you know, it provides an opportunity in the sense that this, this is an economic development opportunity. It's an opportunity to put people to work. Um, so we've got a lot of different variables that make this time around very different. Yeah, and, and just lastly, um, a little off topic, but semi-related, um, I was wondering if you could just share with us, I've been seeing on Cap Metro's uh, Facebook feed that the first electric buses arrived in yes. Austin. Yeah. yeah, so we got our first electric buses, are they, in circulation yet or are they just we've arrived? got two currently in circulation but i believe uh by the end of this year we'll have a few more we received 10 of them this summer so that's super exciting um so we're beginning that transfer over to an electrified fleet um, right and, and building a charging station as well uh as we speak yeah so, so people that's could already underway cool yeah 
Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Um, could you let people know, I guess, what's the website where they can learn more about Project Connect if they want to dig sure. into the maps? I would stuff. direct them to projectconnect.com. And they also should visit the city's website, austintexas.gov. If you, on the search, just type in Project Connect, it'll pull up the table I was talking about if you want to see how those taxes are going to break out for the different um, home values, just to give you an idea um, what you're looking at. Great. Thank you so much, Jackie. For oh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you. That was a lot of info. If you have any trouble remembering all of that, um, you can check out our Instagram page for a post that we actually did about Prop A, which lists out all of the transit lines and costs. And as Jackie mentioned, you can also go to catmetro.org slash project connect to really look through all of the maps and such. I highly recommend it. That way you can see kind of like how close these lines might go to your house. Okay, so on to our next interview. Uh, we're gonna be going back and taking a look back in time and hearing from Jeffrey Wood. Uh, Jeff is the host of the Talking Headways podcast, which talks about transit policy all over the US. And Jeff actually used to live in Austin in the late 90s, early 2000s, and wrote his master's thesis for UT about all of this Austin transit drama and history. But before we jump into that interview, I wanted to give you a little background on what we'll be talking about, especially for all of us like me who didn't grow up in Austin and might be unfamiliar with this history. So in 2000, Austin had a big transit bond on the ballot, one that if passed would have meant that today we'd have a 15 mile line running from Ben White down South Congress through downtown on Guad and all the way to Palmer Lane. Obviously, that is not what we have because that rail system was voted down by just about 2,000 votes, which in the grand scheme of things is a very, very small number of votes. And then again in 2014, the city tried to ask voters to build a rail line. And this time the proposed line was 9.5 miles long and would have run along East Riverside, through downtown, East Campus, and up to ACC Highland. Um, and it was a far more controversial line than the 2001. A lot of people, even rail supporters were against it because they didn't like the path it was taking. And that was actually voted down by a 14 point margin. So not nearly as close as 2000. Okay, so now you're all caught up. Let's listen to that conversation I recorded with Jeff. Well, let's take things back a bit and let me know if you need a pause to look up. We don't need to be so super precise. I don't wanna quiz you on your master's thesis here, but um, <laughs> let's take it back a bit, you know, for you when you start to think about Austin's transportation and this public transit push, where do you start to look? I mean, I, I always go back to the 2000 bond, but it seems like you were doing some, some things were happening before 2000, right? Right. So, I, I mean, I think that's where it started for me, too, yeah. was in 2000, because I was actually in the city at the time and uh, saw that election happen. And um, it was def definitely an interesting time for that specifically. But, you know, it goes back all the way to 1973, um, when the state legislature actually um, authorized uh, cities over 600,000 people to create an MTA, so uh, a Metropolitan Transportation Authority. And uh, at the time, Austin didn't have enough population. If you can imagine that Austin was, uh, you know, below <laughs> 300,000 people or so at the, you know, in the 70s, uh, it's grown a lot since then. But at the time, you know, basically the legislature uh, has never been really a fan of Austin um, and <laughs> the no. city, as you as you well know. Um, but they wrote this law allowing cities like Dallas and Houston to have an MTA, but not Austin. So in 1981, basically, Austin finally got their ability to have an MTA. 
and uh, where they, they, they got the state legislature to change the rules to allow them to have, have one. <laughs> so the, 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 the relationship between the city of Austin, Austin transportation and the legislature has been fraught uh, since the beginning. Right. And so for people that don't know, I kind of want to go into that 2000 election a bit. Um, it, it's, uh, it's so frustrating to look back at <laughs> what we could have had, <laughs> but give people a little bit of history there. So in 2000, we had this election that would have kind of laid this framework for rail in Austin set the scene for us a little bit. Sure. So I should go back a little bit before yeah. 2000 and, and say that, you know, this kind of back and forth between the city and uh, the transit agency and the legislature was ongoing. You know, the, the, each uh, transit agency in, in, the, in the state of Texas is allowed to have a cent sales tax. And, um, you know, as at, after that 1985 uh, creation of, of Capital Metro, they were saving up money and they had saved millions and millions of dollars for a rail system. But the legislature thought that they were too flush with cash. So basically what happened is they were trying to go after part of that cent sales tax up until 2000. And actually 2000 was the culmination of that fight. And basically Cap Metro saying, okay, okay, we got it. You, you want our money. So let's have an election and vote for uh, transit in 2000. We'll come up with an alignment, which actually is interestingly enough, you know, mirrors what uh, part of what you all are, are going to vote for this fall. And, um, and it was during the presidential election. So, you know, George W. Bush was on the ballot, um, you know, th over 300,000 people in Central Texas voted, and the election actually lost by less than 2000 votes. Right. Um, and, and so this is the part that I find so frustrating, because right now we're thinking about a rail proposal that is $7 billion. And that, that's like reduced. And I think, you know, the taxpayer impact to the average Austinite is above $300 a year. Now, my understanding is that the rail proposal that was on the ballot in 2000 or the ability to do it, it was like, we already had the money. Like the vote wasn't asking taxpayers to, you know, add on a bunch of new taxes to themselves, at least not a, right away. Is that is that a correct interpretation or? Yeah, so they had saved up, I can't remember the exact number and I'd, it's probably deep in my report, but um, you know, it, it, was, it was, I think it was over a hundred million or, or you know, getting towards hundreds of millions of dollars. And um, you know, that also was gonna get coupled with uh, money from the FTA, the Federal Transit Administration. And so they had actually rated uh, the project already and gave it a really high rating, which was matched by um, Houston's line, which, uh, you know, broke ridership, uh, you know, records and, and uh, other lines around the country. But the FTA at the time was generally funding about 50% of rail lines. So that line um, would have gotten about 37,000 riders a day and also, um, you know, would have been funded by the FTA. In right. Half. Mm -hmm. And today so, it's just, things are just more expensive and the federal government's <laughs> giving away less money. <laughs> exactly. The, the best time to, to buy something uh, for the future is now, I guess, is the, right. <laughs> is the, the saying. So as you can see, there's a lot of history there, but that's not all. To go even further back, I also spoke with Rusty Heckeman, who helped to curate an exhibit about the history of streetcars in Austin at the Austin History Center a few years ago. And although it might be hard to imagine today, a hundred years ago, there were actually miles of streetcars um, and streetcar tracks running all throughout the city. So that's what I talked about with Rusty. 
right. So here I am with Rusty Heckman, and we're going to be talking about, we're going to be taking a, a deeper dive back into history and talking about um, the streetcar in Austin. And this is something that I know you helped to curate. There was an exhibit at the Austin History Center a few years ago that I saw, and it was pretty cool to just see and imagine, you know, like, what did our city even look like, you know, 100 years ago, and, and how did people get around town? So let's, let's start from the beginning. For, for people who don't know a streetcar, what does that mean? Well, it depends on the era, at least in regards to when you're talking to Austin. Yeah, a lot of people will think of like a modern streetcar, they might think of New Orleans, and okay. that's an electric streetcar, and that's pretty similar to what Austin would have had starting in the early 1890s. Um, but even before that, the streetcar in Austin started in 1875. And before it was powered by electricity, it would have been pulled by mules primarily, or sometimes horses, but mostly mules. And so that's so interesting to me. I, I read that it's, it, so they would be like these little streetcars so they're, they're contained and then a street, and they're on a track still, but then it's a mule that's just like pulling it. Yeah, yeah, it's just a mule that pulls it along the, the laid track like a, like a, like a rail. Um, and it mostly it's contained. Most of the ones in Austin were kind of open street cars just because the weather here accommodates right. that. And they can, you can use it year-round without too much concern, and it's cheaper um, because they were uh, a private business that was, was doing this, so they wanted to try to cut corners as much as they could. <laughs> Right. And so take us back, you know, the streetcar once upon a time in Austin was a big deal here, right? Like it was a pretty big way that people got around town. When did the streetcar first come to Austin? Yeah, you kind of mentioned that already with your intro, um, looking through what Austin looked like in the past. The, the big advantage when we were working on that exhibit at the Austin History Center was it was prevalent throughout the entire city. It had tracks going from East Austin all the way to like a West Austin, Lake Austin, and then North and South from Hyde Park, a little further North Hyde Park, all the way down to um, South of the River at one point. So, and it was on the main thoroughfares, Congress and East Six and a couple others, but you could really see the streets we're still familiar with today. You could see what they looked like in the 1870s because that is when it started. They laid track in, the, in 1874 and then they started pulling passengers in 1875. And then it existed in Austin um, from that point, 1875 until 1940. Wow. And, and there was a, at one point, there's a lot of track laid down, right? I think I read like 20 or more miles of track. Yeah, it was about 22 miles, I believe, of track. Um, they would add to it or subtract to it, depending on which company was investing in it. It changed hands of investors really frequently. Uh, I think in the first 15 years alone, um, three different uh, owner groups kind of managed the company. Uh, those original three were primarily local investors. Um, people like uh, uh, Colonel Swisher, you might be familiar with his name in South Austin, especially um, kind of South Congress area, the cross streets that are named after women, Mary, for example, those were his daughters. Um, he was a real estate investor um, in that area of Austin, but also other parts of Austin. And that was pretty common for all the investors in the streetcar as well. Even though it was a, a commercial investment, it was more uh, a real estate investment for them because it carried the passengers to their areas where they were developing uh, residential land. Interesting. So it was almost like 
some of these neighborhoods were like early suburbs and these developers were building them out, but they needed to provide this service for their residents to get into the city center? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for the first 30 plus years of Austin, it didn't grow a whole lot. The, the, the seat of government moved here and that obviously spurred some growth. Um, but there was even debate about that and it moved back to Houston for, for some time. But then in 1872, there was a statewide election to, to kind of determine what would be the permanent capital of the state and Austin wound up winning that election. And from that point on, there was a lot of exponential growth, a lot, of, a lot more um, commercial investment in the city and a lot more people moving here to find work. Um, so that's the real, the, the real estate is one example of it, but also the streetcar is another example of it where the, these real estate groups were organizing to, to promote their developments and the streetcar was the, the way to get people from the city center to those areas. There wasn't, there wasn't developed infrastructure like you would assume there is today um, where you could hop in your car to go. There weren't cars, for example, so if you didn't have a horse and buggy, um, you might have a bike, but you probably didn't ride that on a frontier road in Austin. Um, so mostly people were walking. So this was a way with the city expanding in size and scope that people could still get into the city center where they would need to work. Right. And so this really, from my understanding, right, like fueled the development of places like Hyde Park or, or something, for example. They were like these little bedroom communities almost. Yeah. Yeah. That, you mentioned the suburbs. Hyde Park is often considered the first suburb of Austin. Um, and it was developed by uh, Colonel Monroe Shipe, I think is how you say his last name is really interesting character. I always compare him to like a P.T. Barnum or something. It's just really huge um, personality and really knew how to promote his, his businesses. Um, he had a racetrack in Hyde Park, for example. And then he, his streetcar company was actually a competing streetcar company. There, there are multiple streetcar companies in Austin, um, depending on the time that you're looking at. But around the 1890s, it was m mostly his and then the original streetcar company. And the original streetcar company was still operating by Mule, uh, but Scheib invested in a, a power plant and was the first one to electrify his streetcar. And that was, again, just to get people to move into his community, but still have a convenient way to get to the city, the town. Yeah. And so these streetcars like you mentioned, these were all privately run companies. It wasn't like how we imagine mass transit today where they're like these publicly funded endeavors. These were just business guys. Yeah, it was all business and they would negotiate with the city. You can find, look in the city charter to see when they approved which um, businesses to, to operate and which kind of thoroughfares they were given right to. Uh, they kind of, they kind of uh, hung themselves hang themselves, I never say that right, right. Uh, hang themselves um, with those negotiations because when they um, set up the thoroughfares with the city, they also gave the city council the rights to um, to dictate their their fares and they basically set it at a five cent fare permanently and they the only way they could change that was to go back to city council and the city council didn't have a lot of incentive to increase the rate of what people were seeing as a public service if they were hoping to get reelected. So that would become a much bigger problem as operating costs continue to rise, but they couldn't increase the revenue. Yeah, from what I read, it seemed like these were not very profitable businesses. They were never profitable. Even at the beginning, they weren't profitable, uh, at least in the sense of as their own commercial entity. I think they were profitable um, from what we were talking about, the real estate and really impacting the growth of certain areas of the city. Hyde Park is a really prime example of that. Yeah. 
And so what about their impact, you know, on the, the racial um, makeup of our city? And obviously Austin has had a long history of racial injustices in the way our city has developed. Did the streetcars play a role in that? Where did um, they serve? Or um, yeah. I assume they didn't really go into East Austin or, or, or did they? They, they went into East Austin as far as um, like Zaragoza Park, that area, the cemetery and past that. Um, but they definitely played a big role in kind of the map of how the different races were eventually moved into East Austin. Um, from the beginning, they served everybody, but then starting in like 1905, I believe it was, um, local ordinances were passed. This kind of was the Jim Crow era and all streetcars had to be uh, segregated from that point on. And there was a lot of, there was actually organized resistance against that by the um, black community in Austin, um, led by the, the, the church community in particular. And they kind of put together their own uh, their own kind of transportation system so they could get people that could no longer, that were resisting taking the streetcars from East Austin to city back and forth. Um, and they, they kept that going for about six months where they were, they were refusing to use the streetcars because of this ordinance, but eventually they just had to, had to accept what was unfortunately the reality at that point. The Hyde Park is another um, example of that. We've already talked about it, uh, but one thing that sometimes gets overlooked is Shipe was um, adamant that his community was strictly for white. It was advertised white only. His streetcars were white only. It would only take the white community into his um, his residential development. Uh -huh. And then the streetcars, you said they lasted until about the 40s. Um, what was kind of their, the end of them? Why did they stop and what were they replaced by? Um, I mean, they were never profitable. We, we touched right. on that. So that was a big part. Like, from the 1920s on, the next 20 years, they're basically operating um, under federal oversight, basically, because uh -huh. they were bankrupt the entire time. <laughs> um, and they couldn't raise their fees. I think they finally got approval to raise their fees in the late 1920s, but even then, it just it just never really panned out um, as, a, as a revenue-producing business. Uh, at that same time in the 1920s, they started running um, buses on different routes and they'd moved, they'd, they'd expanded into South Austin in 1911 when they completed the um, Congress Bridge, the current Congress Bridge, Congress Avenue Bridge into South Austin. They laid rails across that into South Austin. Um, and that was the, the last expansion and the first one taken away. So in South Austin, they basically replaced it with bus transportation in the late 1920s and 1930s. And then um, they negotiated with the city, basically saying, from this point on, we'll start, um, we'll start transitioning to bus only. So for the next 10, 12 years, uh, they just brought in more and more buses and started taking away more and more of the rail routes. Yeah. And why buses were more profitable? They were more flexible? Like what, what kind of made the bus the technology of the day? A few things. This was a, the rails were the rail business, the streetcar business was um, privately owned. So all of the operating costs, the maintenance of the rails, the power plants in some cases, the streetcars themselves, um, the fees for the, the drivers and the brakemen, all of that came as part of the operating cost for the business. Um, but meanwhile, these streets that were 
where, where you could operate the buses or your own personal vehicles. Those are all being subsidized by the city. This was being paved. These, this infrastructure was being created by the city to operate these other modes of transportation. So that was a benefit that the streetcars weren't seeing. Um, and every time they paved a street, the streetcars then would have to pull up the rail, do, do the paving themselves because they, they own that thoroughfare and then relay the rail. So this is just not, it was never really panning out for them to, to make money. Um, so it was a way of taking advantage of the subsidized infrastructure, the streets that were being laid out that were improved um, compared to what they were in the 1970s, obviously. And, um, and oil costs were significantly less than trying to maintain your own electric power plant. Uh, so it's just it was a lot of factors, but basically it was cheaper. Yeah. And then, you know, it's so interesting to think about Austin having the streetcar system because, you know, it almost seems like today I'm like, well, would that be nice? Like, what if we still <laughs> had that? And it's like, there definitely are trends, you know, and, and what people want and how our city develops. And we're trying to build out a big mass transit system in Austin now. And it feels so modern and new. It's like shocking to hear that there was some version of this a hundred years ago, you know, like, do you see any, any lessons learned or, or history repeat itself when you look back at, you know, when you were doing the research where you're like, Oh, this could have, this, this is an article I could have read today or you know, like what, what kind of echoes do you see? Um, it's frustrating, honestly. Like yeah. I don't think people realize how much of what today is already played out in the past. Um, if we could have, come up with a way to, to have public funding for, for mass transit at that time. Maybe we could have maintained this, these routes and had, um, had these routes already in place so we wouldn't have to be trying to invent these, these places. Okay, where are we gonna lay this new, this new rail that we're talking about with the bonds? Well, we already own this, this thoroughfare through the streetcars. We can just upgrade that, but that wasn't something obviously they, they considered 100 years ago. I mean, who did? Um, but just like the lessons of history, the the, the uh, like Uber and Lyft are another example um, that came to light during the research of this exhibit. And that's again something very modern. We think, oh, this is a completely new um, issue that we have to tackle, and how we legislate it versus other modes of transportation, taxis, for example, or buses. How are we going to make sure it's competitive, and how are we going to have have oversight to make it safe for people? These were all issues that were tackled about 100 years ago, 1915. Um, there was a, it wasn't an organized company like an Uber or Lyft, but it was the same idea where these uh, kind of entrepreneur owners of Model Ts or any vehicle you could get really get your hand on would start offering rides to people for five cents. It's called a jitney because jitney was short, was uh, slang for a nickel at the time. And that happened to be the same fare as as the streetcars. And so they would follow along the streetcar routes while people were waiting for streetcar, pick them up, basically oh. steal their passengers and then take them where they want. And they did have a lot more flexibility than the streetcars because they were committed to the rails. Um, but it became this whole issue similar to what Uber had where the streetcars were going to city council saying, this is not competitive. They can't be doing this. We own the rights to the thoroughfare along Congress, along six. So this back and forth with, with them and um, in this case, the, the streetcar companies won. They, they got local legislation passed to outlaw their operation along certain streets and to make a requirement for the drivers to have a certain overhead of insurance and just different things that made it non-competitive, basically. 
Um, and it was, uh, the similarities again are really astounding because it was contested all the way up to the Texas Supreme Court where it was finally decided that um, what was passed locally would stand and they kind of disappeared to history. It's not something that people know about now. Wow, that's so interesting. Yeah, I know that um, the legal battles are always something for, for especially also like Texas transportation. It's, um, you know, something I think that we've grappled with as, as a state of like, are we a state that does this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and as we've continued to change, it's, it's interesting to see that we've always had these same fights and battles. <laughs> I think that's the biggest kind of obstacle biggest thing to learn is the, the, dis, the, the streetcars disappeared because they weren't commercially viable, but also because the culture, it, it's a car culture. That's what America is. And regardless of how much we want to invest in mass transit, it's never going to succeed in reducing the, the, the cars on the road. It's never going to succeed in, in accomplishing the things that we want it to do until we, as a culture, kind of accept it and, and use it to the for to the potential that it has yeah totally well great thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it it's always interesting to take a little step back and and see that uh we've had these fights before sometimes it, it takes a little pressure off <laughs> to know we've always been grappling with it we aren't the first austinites to be struggling with traffic and transportation um the one last thing i'm wondering about is the streetcars you know you said that I guess it was just a way for people to get in. Mm -hmm. Is it the same conversation like that we have about public transit today? Like were there parking problems in downtown or was it just hard to walk to downtown? Like, you know, what, what would make someone get on a streetcar? Like what was the selling point? I think it's, it's the same argument, just a slightly different. Right now, I think the argument is the infrastructure doesn't exist to support the amount of cars we want to have on the road or to park downtown. At the time that the streetcars were originally being placed, there wasn't the infrastructure to get people downtown. The, the, the main roads, East 6th and um, Congress, weren't paved until the 1890s, I believe. Wow. Um, the first cobblestones weren't laid on Congress until um, 1873, so right before the streetcars arrived. So even if you were fortunate enough to have your own carriage and horse and have the, the finances to support that, you had a pretty rough ride ahead of you. So that was the big advantage to the streetcar is, yeah, they might be pulled by the same um, power, a mule or a horse, but it's riding on this nice smooth rail system. So it was, uh, it was more convenient. It was, um, it was cheaper because it's a lot cheaper to pay five cents for a fare downtown than it is to own and, and kind of keep your own stable and horse. Um, and you can't really ride your bike down this frontier road into into town so it was just at that point it was the same it was it was infrastructure similar to what today is infrastructure i would say that's the similarity yeah so interesting well thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it yeah, glad i could join you this is fun great so much interesting history there and as rusty mentioned a lot of austin's transportation history is closely aligned with our history of racial injustice and segregation. That's why, as we begin to consider whether or not we should invest in a new transportation system for Austin, we need to be thinking about the impacts it will have, not just on traffic, but on gentrification, displacement, and economic opportunity. That's what I discussed with our final guest of the show, Yasmin Smith, 
who is the vice president of Puma, People United for Mobility Action. In this interview, Yasmin talks about the ways her organization has tried to institutionalize equity into this new transit plan. She also gives some great tips on how to make your final decision when it comes to Prop A. Okay, here it is. Okay, so I'm here with um, Yasmin from Puma, uh, which is People United for Mobility Action. Is that right? Yes. Yes. And um, basically what I wanted to chat with you some today is um, obviously we're doing this whole show about Prop A and Project Connect. Um, but with any of these big city projects, there's always, you know, a concern of how do we how do we do this development in a way that that's equitable? and um, doesn't um, doesn't worsen our already existing problems and helps to improve our situation. So I know this is something that Puma has been working on um, for a little while. Maybe just to start, can you give folks who aren't as familiar with the organization a little background on you all and when you got started? For sure. So Puma's been around for um, a, almost a year now. I believe we had our launch October um, of last year, and we are at a diverse group of individuals, uh, socioeconomic status, race, background, um, interests, um, and we've come together really to make sure and provide uh, the safe, accessible, and affordable um, transportation and mobility um, for all people in Austin to get around and meet their, uh, their uh, basic needs and their daily needs. Um, we are har- we really um, are cemented in um, our ideology and our methodology being that of mobility justice. Um, And what that means is that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter your lived experience and your vulnerabilities, that you can get from point A and point B, not only in an efficient and effective manner, but in a manner that provides more to you, that makes you better, that makes you um, you know, a better person, a better community member. And sounds a little fuzzy, right? Because most people don't talk about transportation and mobility in that way. Um, but in order to really become an equitable civilization, um, including that within transportation, we must begin start starting to think about transportation as literally the veins um, of how we operate as a community um, and take that um, in stride and know that that's a great responsibility um, so that's a little bit about us. Um, we're we're uh, we've been very uh, I, I you'd say hands on um, in in Project Connect thus far, and making sure um, that it really adheres to mo- mobility justice principles. Yeah, and it's so interesting because you know, like you said, I don't think it's something people think about a lot, but how our transit system is put together really impacts you know, who has access to jobs and housing affordability and prices and access to healthcare and education. I mean, it really connects literally all of these things. It connects all of these things. And so we have to start thinking about it on that level, not thinking about a transportation evolution as just laying down concrete, right? But really taking in the individual. It's the individual before the project. Um, And so if we look at it through that lens, we can then start to, uh, you know, we can then start to build something that actually works for the benefit of us all. Right. And this is something that um, 
you know, an organization like yours, I think is so needed in our city because we have a long history of transportation systems that um, have really contributed to racial inequality in this city, like I-35. Um, and, and we also had, you know, we just had um, another guest on our show today talks about um, streetcars and Hyde Park and the development of that, of those communities really as white only communities that were served by public transit. Um, mm -hmm. I assume that kind of part of the, the challenge is we have the years of history to, to move beyond. Um, I wonder yes. how you grapple yes. with that. Well, for me, um, I see it as knowing that there is an ability to use policy, as we've seen historically, to disenfranchise populations. And knowing that to be a fact and knowing that to be true, I believe then that we are able to do the same thing. We are able to operationalize equity within those same systems. That we have the tools, we've seen the history, we see how it can go off the rails. Now, in this time, in this space, it's time for us to really step up and start addressing those factors and, and, uh, going beyond those factors, using those same mechanisms that have disenfranchised populations to empower populations. Right. And so as we look at Project Connect, like you said, you've been um, heavily engaged in that process. Um, for folks who haven't been as engaged in this is the first time they've ever heard of it or seen of it and it's coming on the ballot. Can you give a little background, I guess, about um, how you all have been trying to um, help shape the the very creation of what we have to vote on in November. For sure. So uh, before uh, Puma got involved, um, the, the 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 narrative um, that uh, was very prominent um, in Austin was this huge project, right? Nearly ten billion dollars is a huge project, um, and that it would be good for the city because the city needed uh, more active transportation. And that's kind of where the conversation ended, right? Um, be happy, you're getting this thing, we need this thing, everyone agrees we need this thing, here you go, go ahead and vote for it. But there wasn't any discussion about how we would make sure that this transportation evolution was truly evolutionary, that it wasn't going to do the same things that it had historically done, which was, displace and hurt vulnerable populations. And so that's where Puma, uh, people getting that approvability action, that's where Puma really uh, stuck its heel in the ground. Um, coming from a place of trying to make Project Connect the best project it could be if it should pass. Um, and so we were very adamant about how to interject the lived experience of community members in every part and faucet of the project so that if the project did go off the rails, pun intended. Mm -hmm. If the project did go off the rails, there was the ability for, a, for the community to step in and step up. We wanted to make sure that we not only created space at the table, but that at that seat at the table, community had power. And so we did that a couple of ways, right? So 
Um, when you look at the legally binding documents, and I'm a lawyer by trade, so for me, I'm all about the words on the page. I right. want to see it in black and white. I want it to be legally binding. So when you look at the resolution or the contract with the voters, what you're seeing there due to Puma and the efforts of a coalition we built that included um, Austin Justice Coalition, AJC, and Planning Our Communities, POC, um, what we did there was we interjected um, different mechanisms to make sure the community could truly guide and lead. So you see that in the ATP. That's the governing body um, of the project of Project Connect, or what what will be the governing body of Project Connect if it passes. And so what we did there was say, okay, there's a lot of requirements, but there's no requirement to be an expert in community engagement. So we, we added that sprinkle in there, right? Then we go to the CAC, the Community Advisory Committee, right? This is a separate committee that advises the ATP on equity. Also, you know, in addition to that, we made sure to make sure that there was an assessment tool so that when triggers were hit or KPIs, key performance indicators, suggested that equity was in jeopardy, um, we would have an assessment tool to track that. Um, Further, that assessment tool um, shall be created with community members. Further, if um, that assessment tool is triggered in a way that suggests equity is in jeopardy, it has to be um, it has to be discussed at the addressed at the next city council hearing. Um, so there are there are a lot of ways we try to make sure to kind of slot that that section off, right? Make sure that when it comes to the effectuation of Project Connect. Um, the community members were there being able to make decisions and have decision-making power. Um, and then last but certainly not least is that $300 million for anti-displacement. Um, and when we say anti-displacement, that is not just affordable housing. It can be, but we really provided a buffet option to city council on what does stabilizing a community mean? and making sure that it's the community who gets to decide what stabilization efforts they need for their community. So those are just a couple of the bells and whistles um, that, that Puma was able to provide to the process in order to truly operationalize equity um, and make sure that vulnerable populations um, were, were stabilized, protected, heard, acknowledged, um, and followed. Yeah, that $300 million piece is um, a big deal. My understanding is that it's pretty uncommon to see something like that in a transit package. Yes. Yeah, I, you know, it's the other thing, I think it hits on this thing that we've seen in Austin a lot, which is this struggle of how do we um, build resources and amenities for our community that don't just in turn displace the very community they were built to serve. Yes. Um, and the $300 million, that, that as an initial investment, mm -hmm. along with all of the other, the other um, operation, operationalizing equity initiatives, um, really, I believe, sets us in a place, definitely historical in Austin, but Texas and even the nation, we will be in the top, if not the top, most progressive um, city when it comes to providing transportation in an equitable manner. We'll be the new golden standard. Um, and so if it, if it is to pass. And so I think this is us as a community together really trying to figure out how to do this, right? This hasn't been done yet. 
Um, and we're and it 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 is um, exciting to see us in this time and space as a city, right? Knowing our history, um, with that you know even down you know back to the 1928 master plan, knowing where we've come from to get to this point to where we are working together to try to figure out what does it mean to build equity into every system and policy moving forward. And I think this is a great first step. Um, the community is going to have to stay engaged um, well after November if it passes. Um, but I, I, it's a good first step, and, and, and it, makes, it, it makes one who was once weary just a little bit more hopeful. Right. And so what advice do you have for people who are now starting to do their research and are unsure about the initiative still, you know, feel like, I don't know how this is going to affect my neighborhood. I don't know about the price. It's, you know, it is expensive, especially, um, you know, if you're a family that has been hit by COVID to take on an extra, you know, to be asked to take on an extra expense right now. Um, What advice do you Mm -hmm. have for people to to learn more or to, to dig into it? So definitely do your research, right? Go to all of the, because, you know, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, right? Okay, right. So I'm, I'm a proponent of always going to the, 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 the proponents and opponents, reading everything, um, and then truly looking at it, um, you know, in order to do that, you know, definitely always go to Capital Metro's website. But then on the other side of that spectrum, right, go to the Austin Justice Coalition's website, right? Go to Puma's website, see what everyone else is saying. So you can start to direct, you can start to distill all of the pros and cons um, through the lens of of those speaking. And then truly sit down with that list, right? You see how much it's going to add to your your monthly budget. Totally understandable. You see what it's going to do transportation-wise. You see what it's going to do equity-wise with the anti-displacement funding. List all those out and see if it's worth it for you, right? Puma can't tell you, Puma is not in a position. Um, We are a non-endorsing entity. We are not in a position to tell you what you should do. We are in a position to educate. Um, And and for me, you have to, you know, as an individual, I have to think about game day. And if the things that I am giving to the city um, is worth it to have a transportation system where we can actually get around, to have a system where we're stabilizing the, the community, that to have that system, it's it come to the individual individual voter. Um, and don't be scared about asking questions. This is the time, right? If there's anything I would say, it's this is the time to ask questions and get answers so that we can address the situation. If you have a concern or worry when it comes to Project Connect, this is the time to, to, to ask those questions because quite honestly, again, going back to the evolutions we have made as a city, at this time and place, we are actually, instead of say, you know, silencing those concerns or turning a blind eye to those concerns, it appears to me, especially through the advocacy work I've done with Puma um, and what we've been able to accomplish, that the city is really here to try to work and actually address those concerns, which is, which is exciting. So, so do your research, um, see if it makes sense for you, and then furthermore, see if it makes sense for us. I would, I, when we're making these decisions, if, we, if you really, if you sit down with yourself and you say, yes, I want equity. Yes, I want to protect vulnerable populations. Yes, I want the brighter future of tomorrow. That is not going to happen unless you step outside of yourself 
and begin making decisions for us instead of you. And so see if it's the best decision for us. Does that make sense? Yes, that's great. I love that advice. I mean, I think so many people are struggling with just uh, make, when you go for election day, there's all these decisions you have to make. And I think it can be so stressful. And I love that advice, kind of helping people balance that out and think of a place to come from. Um, so if people are interested in Puma's larger work, they're passionate about transportation, how can they learn more about your organization or get engaged? Yeah, for sure. You can always go to puma-atx.org. Uh, I'm sorry, hyphen.org. Um, you can also reach us at info at puma.com. Um, we are here. You can just Google Puma. We're here. Uh, we're, we're fighting and, and please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, we, we truly believe in listening um, and making sure that we, um, we act as a, um, a, a bridge um, to communities um, and transportation evolutions that impact them. Great, thank you so much. Of course, have a wonderful day. You too. So there you have it, folks. <laughs> That's our show on Prop A and the history of mass transit in Austin. Obviously, we only scratch the surface of so many of these topics, but there's just so much to cover. But to keep things simple, here's a little recap. If you live in Austin this November, you'll have the opportunity to vote on Proposition A. And here's how that will read exactly on the ballot. Quote, approving the ad valorem tax rate of 0.5335 for $100 valuation in the city of Austin for the current year, a rate that is 0.0875 higher per $100 valuation than the voter approval rate of the city of Austin for the purpose of providing funds for a citywide traffic easing rapid transit system known as Project Connect, yada, 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 <laughs> keeps going on for this very long paragraph. The point is that you're going to see this huge paragraph with a whole bunch of text of words and it's going to seem super confusing. That's why it's important to study this stuff before you go into the ballot box. It's not very clear, but it is called Proposition A. That's what you'll be looking for. And if you vote yes, it means that you want transit to come to Austin and you're willing to pay for it, see an increase in property taxes. If you vote no, then you don't want this transit or at least this plan as it's been laid out to come to Austin. Okay, still have questions and we wanna hear about them. You can send us a message on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common and we'll try and get them answered. And one last thing before we close is our weekly action item. As you can see from looking at the history of Austin's transit elections, these things can be won or lost by just a few votes. So no matter what you think of Prop A, do not forget to cast your ballot come election day and tell your friends. Visit catmetro.org slash project connect or austintexas.gov slash 2020 Prop A for more info on what you'll be voting on. Okay, now we're really done for the day. You can find podcasts of our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about the Austin Common, you can visit our website at theaustincommon.com or follow us on Instagram, again, at the underscore Austin underscore common. The show is hosted by myself, Amy Stansberry, and produced by John Hoffner and broadcast live via Co-op Studios, a cooperatively run community radio station based right here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of Co-op's amazing lineup of shows, visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. Join us next week as we continue our election education series with a special focus on the race for Austin's next District 2 council member who serves Southeast Austin. We'll see you then.